Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Welcome back to the second part of our intranasal pharmacotherapy update with Dr. Mark Donaldson and Dr. Philippe Mettler, both colleagues of mine at Vizient. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director with the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Let's pick back up with the decision-making that goes into this. Tell me a little bit about why you would choose intranasal administration of an agent over some of the other non-oral or non-IV routes that we have, such as interosseous or buccal or rectal, transdermal, those types of things. The interosseous, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. That's pretty painful. Patient acceptance outside of an emergency situation is probably going to be low. Not that it's not effective, just that it is very painful. The buccal route is not a bad way to go. Although when we do administer medications buccally or um, submandibularly or sublingually, however you would like to word it, a lot of the medication actually is absorbed via swallowing. Not all medications are formulated to be absorbed transmucosally. That can be a challenge. And then the per rectum, certainly there is a challenge with some perhaps social embarrassment on behalf of the patient which could affect the acceptance of medications being delivered per rectal. It really gets back to what we all think is the most important thing in medicine, and that is patient safety. The intranasal route is certainly favorable because of all the safety reasons Phil brought up, risk of needle sticks, not just to the patient, but also healthcare providers, potentially risk of hep C or HIV if you were to succumb to a needle stick in a patient at risk. And then from a patient perspective, the intranasal administration oftentimes is more desirable compared to our our other non-oral or IV routes. Phil, what have you seen? When I think about the patient satisfaction, the ability to avoid possibly getting an IV, the caregiver satisfaction, I think about it from a pediatric perspective where there's a greater fear of needles in general. The administration of a sedative medication maybe because imaging is needed or whatnot, it really is something that's comforting not only for the child but also for the parent. Many times you can do intranasal administration while the child's sitting in the parent's lap and that might not necessarily be the case when I'm trying to get an IV inserted and working around that aspect. That patient satisfaction is a huge benefit fit over the other routes, also considering the fact that the intranasal route does have better onset data relative to per rectum, things of that nature, and ease of administration relative to going an intraosseous route. Also, in some of these medications, we're actually looking for that direct access to the CNS. There could be some benefits in onset or entry into the brain. That's going to definitely play as research plays out in those unique areas I was speaking about around Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I can definitely see some of the advantages with choosing this route over some of those other non-oral or non-IV routes. Phil, I know you have quite a bit of experience recommending administering medications intranasally. Tell me about some of the practical considerations that our listeners should be aware of, particularly when not to use these agents. Take into consideration the route of administration. If I'm administering intranasally, yet they're spewing out mucus or they have a massive bleeding nose, they have some sort of facial trauma or septal defects, probably not going to benefit by administering intranasally. With one exception, if I have a nosebleed and I'm using intranasal thrombin, that would be an example where it makes sense. But otherwise, I wouldn't want to be using intranasal in that setting. Generally speaking, if I already have IV access, that's typically going to be the most reliable source for onset duration, for guaranteed route of administration, and therefore using intranasal probably wouldn't be necessary in that case. 
Some other practical things to think of, though, not just of when not to use it, but now I'm using it, what things should I take into consideration that it's not just as simple as filling up a syringe? Generally, you're going to be using a mucosal atomization device, and the reason you want to use those is as opposed to a drop, the atomizer spreads it out into much smaller particles, so you get a much broader surface area of coverage. That mucosal atomization device that you are putting onto your syringe has a 0.1 ml fill. So whatever volume you're using, you'll want to go ahead and make sure you add about 0.1 mls more of whatever volume you need to account for that dead space. When administering, the nose is pretty narrow. The goal is to get the medication to the nasal mucosa. The goal is not for the medication to fall back in the back of the throat and the patient to swallow it. Your ideal volume per nair is 0.3 mls. You can go up to 1 ml per nair, but once you're reaching those volumes, you do run the risk again of having that really just becoming ingested and not necessarily becoming absorbed. So it's important to know what your volume limitations. And then on administration of the medication, the mucosal atomization device, it's a spongy, conical-looking device. You'll want to make sure you have a nice fit into the nair when administering it. You're going to pay attention to how your patient's positioned. In general, it's ideal to have the patient's head tilted back. You'll want to administer the medication not towards the inside of the nose, as in the inside of the septum, but actually more pointing towards the ear if, if you were to create an imaginary line. Because you think about it, if I squeeze this plunger towards the septum, I'm really just administering a larger volume of this drug to the septum of the nose, and it's not actually being dispersed. So I'd rather have it go in the right direction. That's why you have to pay attention to the positioning of the head and the direction of the syringe so that I administer medication into the airway, into the absorbable mucosa area. So interesting, the comment about the overfill in the syringe with the atomizer device. In your experience, is it typically someone at the bedside that's preparing this dose, like a pharmacist or a nurse, or are these coming dispensed from the hospital pharmacy in the acute care setting? My experience has been it's either being prepared by the nurse who is administering it or the pharmacist who is in direct communication at all times with the nurse who is administering it. That's good to know. Thank you. You've both touched a little bit on some of the pediatric-specific considerations, specifically that this is perhaps a preferred route for pediatrics. Tell me a little bit more about some of the implications for that population. This is a great area. It's a great opportunity for administering medications in children to help ease some of the concerns around needles and needle sticks. It's a needle-free product. You come in a room with any type of medication in a syringe and there's going to be concerns kids might freak out. It's a good idea with the child to let them see the syringe, for instance, maybe let them hold it, let them feel the front of the mucosal atomization device, the little cone. It's a sponge. It doesn't hurt one bit when you feel it. Those are things that maybe an adult can very rapidly rationalize, but a child being able to touch and feel and understand what's happening makes it a little bit easier for them. Some things to consider from the practitioner's side, for instance, dosing, the doses used in kids per kilogram on occasion are actually higher than what you might see in adults. You just pay attention to your dosing and how that might change depending upon whether it's an adult or a child that you're using it. Thank you for sharing some implications specific to that population, which, as you know, is near and dear to my heart. What do we have to look forward to in the future in this space? Mark, why don't you start? I'm excited about this topic. It might not be of particular interest to a lot of people, but you should know that it is an area of great research and a number of therapeutics are coming to light. Some are going to be real game changers in the current standard of care for certain disease states. 
I've finished my last comments roundabout to the reverse agent naloxone. And one of the areas that has certainly spurred interest forward is not only the intranasal availability of naloxone and then the extra strength or double strength formulation that I talked about, Cluxado, but given the fact that many patients who unfortunately succumb to an opioid overdose oftentimes require more than one dose of naloxone, there is in fact a new long-acting version of naloxone, a new long-acting narcotic reversal agent. The generic is nalmefine, but the product that was just approved by the FDA May 22nd of this year is called OPV, O-P-V-E-E. And so that's exciting. You may only have to be giving patients a single intranasal dose of OPV, uh, nalmefine, versus having to require multiple doses of our traditional naloxone. The game changer that I'm most excited about actually has to do with another rescue agent, and that is epinephrine. All of us know that epinephrine is the drug of choice for treating respiratory and cardiovascular uh, manifestations of acute accelerated type 1 IgE-mediated anaphylactoid reactions. It really is that one true life-saving drug that should be in all of our emergency kits. Historically, most people have relied on the auto-injectors, in other words, the EpiPens, for being able to very easily and quickly administer epinephrine in a life-saving situation. What a lot of people forget is that the half-life of epinephrine is about two minutes. So if you are administering an auto-injector to a patient and you can't get them to the hospital or the EMTs can't get to you within, let's say, 10 minutes, don't be surprised if you have to give it a second injection, and even in some worst case scenarios, even a third injection. The reason that that becomes important is not everybody is carrying around two or three auto injectors, usually only just one. And then I'm sure it's hard to look at any type of periodical, whether that's medical related or not, to know that those auto injectors have certainly gone up in price. And that's created an incredible burden, not on hospitals and pharmacies, but on patients and then their families having to keep an auto injector in the house, in the car, at school, in their purse. And with these things outdating every 12 to 18 months, you know, that can be a significant investment. On top of all that, the needle length in all of the auto injectors is actually too short in many occasions. We are a growing society in the wrong sense of the word. And with the high increase in in the opioid epidemic, the 25 gauge half inch needle that is on almost all auto injectors really is not enough to get through the different levels of musculature adipose to deliver uh, life-saving epinephrine to the vastus lateralis and then have that to be taken back to the heart to save that patient's life. So there have been failures of these auto injectors. What does all this have to do with the price of bread? There is, in fact, a brand new intranasal epinephrine device. It's going to be called Nephi, N-E-F-F-Y. There are four pivotal trials that actually brought Nephi to market, just recently approved by the FDA, that actually showed that the blood levels of epinephrine and the onset of anaphylaxis reversal was actually better with the intranasal formulation versus our historical intramuscular administration. This is going to be a game changer. It suddenly causes the concerns for the short needles and the auto injectors and the potential needle sticks all by the wayside and puts the intranasal delivery of epinephrine front and center for all of the important safety, efficacy, and finally, patient compliance opportunities at the forefront. This is going to be a terrific advancement in medical care. I agree. That's really exciting to think about that coming to market. And I'm glad you brought up the needle length because you know I was going to ask you if you didn't. So appreciate that. We'll make sure that we put links to all the products that you all are bringing up in the podcast in our show notes. Phil, what are some of the future implications and what might we have to look forward to? There's a lot to look forward to when you look at the research relative to my history of use of medication intranasally. Now that the conversation is more around how can I administer medications and why would I administer medications intranasally, maybe to reach the CNS directly. 
avoid systemic symptoms. One of the issues that we have, though, is a lot of these medications may be larger in size. They may be, for instance, biologics. Now the research is around looking at encapsulating these, you know, lipid nanoparticles, peptides, pegylation, things of that nature that enables enhanced absorption through the nasal mucosa. And so direct access to the CNS for chemotherapy to avoid systemic toxicity, maybe for Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease to avoid the systemic side effects of those medications. It's fascinating the direction that this is taking. A lot of the stuff I think about is definitely in the very preliminary stages of research, but something to look forward to. Well, that's great to hear. It's always nice to have that optimistic outlook on what we will be seeing in the future. So what should our frontline pharmacy staff know about these medications? It's important for the frontline pharmacy staff to be aware of whatever protocols or processes exist within the organization, to be able to speak on some of the practical pieces, such as the overfill that's needed, the 0.1 mLs overfill, the variances in dosing between if I were administering something intravenously versus intranasally, the variances in dosing between adult and pediatric. It's important for the pharmacist to be very aware of all protocols, policies that are surrounding intranasal use. Mark, anything to add to that? Oftentimes we're called at the bedside to bring forward ideas that may not be mainstream. You might have a patient that their veins collapse and you can no longer get IV access, or you have an emergency situation where you need to get drug into the body very, very quickly. And top of mind to most of our medical colleagues or even nurses is probably not going to be the intranasal route or even the rectal route in the case of, let's say, using Valium to reduce seizures. Something that we really didn't think a lot about, and now that certainly in pediatrics anyways, is becoming a little more commonplace. The idea or the knowledge we want to pass on to our colleagues in pharmacy is, listen, we have a great opportunity here with access medications that will work intranasally in patients, even though historically we may always be associating them with another route of administration. If that's not open to us, this one certainly is a safe, reliable, and incredibly useful tool in our toolkit. Thank you both so much for sharing your insights around this unique administration route. I really enjoyed hearing about some of the labeled and off-labeled indications, the safety implications, some of the practical implications, and of course, the dental uses. So really appreciate having both of you on today. And thank you for joining us to share your perspectives. Thanks, Gretchen. Great to be here. Thank you. And listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.